Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight on our one year anniversary, we talk about a real jailbird. Guards in BC have nabbed a pigeon being used to fly drugs in a little backpack into a prison yard. We find out exactly how you train one to do that. Crime historian Eve Lazarus, author of Cold Case BC, joins us for our segment called A Little More True Crime to talk about some of the murder and missing persons cases featured in her new book. Learn about how a Mr. Big Sting nabbed the killer of a 12-year-old Merrick girl decades after her death and how genetic genealogy cracked a very cold case and led police to the man responsible for the murders of a young Victoria couple in Washington State in 1987. But first, North American leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, are in Mexico City this week for the Three Amigos Summit. We hear from the President and CEO of the Canadian Business Council, who is there, about why it's time for more cooperation and less trade conflict between the three neighboring countries. Well, first up, let's head to Mexico City, where the leaders of Canada, the U.S., and Mexico gathered for the North American Leaders Summit, also known, of course, as the Three Amigos. Lots to talk about, including fighting cartels and crime, fentanyl, immigration. But the main focus was economic, a little more than three years since NAFTA was scrapped by then-President Trump to be replaced by a new agreement, uh, whose acronym I can never remember, but is USMCA. People remember what happened just a few years ago when the certainty of this partnership was in question. Investors, businesses, workers and citizens all worried about what would happen. When free trade is at risk, that isn't good for competition in the global market. Thankfully, the belief in free and fair trade won the day. The Prime Minister there uh, speaking in Mexico City today. Um, Prime Minister Trudeau did sit down for a one-on-one meeting with President Biden. Details of exactly what they talked about were kept private. Uh, there were some irritants going into this. Canada and the U.S. upset with uh, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico for violating the free trade pact by favoring Mexico's state-owned utility over power plants built by foreign and private investors. Some protectionism on the Mexican side there. Um, Trudeau and Lopez Obrador concerned about Biden's efforts to boost domestic manufacturing, so-called America First stuff. Um, And today, Trudeau did speak about emphasizing free trade between the U.S. and Canada, between the three partners, really. You know, 80% of our exports, nearly 80% of our exports go to the U.S. Here is the Prime Minister again. Yes, we're at a time of challenges and strife, but you're right, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, especially uh, for those of us in our countries. But it's going to take a lot of work, something that neither you nor I nor mostly our citizens have ever been afraid of. Uh, Rolling up our sleeves and building that better future and those better communities is absolutely essential. The Prime Minister uh, sitting with Joe Biden today. We do know they worked out uh, a few things, a temporary fix to that fight over the Nexus Trusted Traveler System, and President Biden will indeed make his first trip to Canada as president in March. Well, joining me now with more on this from Calgary tonight is Goldie Hyder. He's president and CEO of the Canadian Business Council. He was or is just back from Mexico City. Welcome home or welcome back. Yeah, literally just back. Good to be with you again, Ben. Happy New Year to you. 
Yes, and you. Um, what was it like? I mean, the atmosphere, it's been a while since we've had one of these in person. Uh, what was it like to be all gathered there? And I gather that business leaders, including yourselves, were all down there taking part in this for perhaps the first time in this way. Well, I think that's the real story is where we find ourselves is governments who normally meet with each other and, you know, kind of discuss what it is that they need to do. I think uh, appreciated the fact that they had an opportunity to actually sit down with business leaders from all three countries, because when all is said and done and they acknowledge this at the gatherings that we had, um, it's the business community that executes. It's, the, it's they're the ones who create the jobs. They're the ones who bring in the business. They're the ones who hire people to, you know, to, to help in, in execute the agreements that these governments are making. So it was really nice to see. Um, I can tell you that the business leaders I spoke with in all three countries felt that there was goodwill established here. There's a spirit of partnership, a spirit of collaboration, and a recognition, just as we saw in COVID, Ben. I always come back to COVID as an example of where I don't think the public cared who did what. They just wanted to make sure that they were going to be okay, that they had a job, that they were going to be taken care of. Governments did their part, but business community did a lot during that as well. And when we find ourselves in geopolitical risks that's going on out there, I think that people have the same attitude. They're worried about their own issues. They expect business and government and others to do what they need to do, work together, play nice, and get the results for the people. I know you went into this uh, asking, you even wrote a letter to this effect, uh, asking for a real spirit of cooperation between our three countries. You called protectionism uh, in another interview, politically logical, but practically illogical, uh, to quote Spock. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's this is a time when we would think that this is um, time for Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. to, to join forces. It's, it's competitive out there, and we are natural partners. Yeah, that's one of the main messages I had the opportunity when the Prime Minister was there to kind of kick off the, the response from the business communities. And the main message that all three of our, our business associations from our respective countries was simply this. Um, the world is changing and it's changing very fast. And uh, you can't dictate how that happens. It's already happening. If you look at the European Union, you know, despite what everybody thinks about Europe, it's held together. It's a strong block of countries where critical mass is there. You look at what's taking place in the Indo-Pacific and in Asia. I mean, we have trade agreements, one of the largest, the largest trade agreement called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That's 30 percent of the global GDP, 30 percent, you know, of, of uh, a population. And guess what? It doesn't just include democracies. It's got China. It's got other countries that are involved. Australia is there as a democracy. And so you're seeing that even where there's ideological differences, countries are coming together because there's strength in numbers. But for whatever reason, Ben, and I don't know what the reason is, North America has always acted as what I call me, myself, and I. And it's either take care of yourselves or it's just have a good relationship with America. What we've been able to say to the business, uh, to the governments is, the new world in which we find ourselves, if we don't beef up, if you will, if we don't have critical mass, we're not going to be able to compete with those blocks. And so we really advocated for what we call the North American you know, team, a North American jersey, if you will. Yes, we're going to have competition amongst ourselves. We have competition inside Canada. There's nothing wrong with competition. In fact, we want to see more competition because competition is good for the consumer. But let North America realize that we're going to be stronger if we fight this fight together than if we fight inside each other's tent here because the, the battle is not from inside. It's for the rest of the world. And I think from what I saw, governments have realized, I had an opportunity to speak with uh, Secretary Blinken directly, and he was saying, look, you know, this is, this is what we're seeing. You know, the pace of change, the rate of change is happening so fast. He said it's a growing, you know, it's a growth industry, you know, change. We've change got to figure great... out how to manage that. We've got to figure out how to manage that. And, and I think this is what Canadians, you know, as I said, they're not thinking about this at their dinner tables. They're expecting us to do it for them. 
Yeah, but I guess if we look back, you know, memories of 2019 are still pretty vivid, you know, about an an unpredictable America is, I think, part of what's been Mm -hmm. the problem here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, America, I mean, within our, unlike, say, the European Union, where France and Germany sort of counterbalance each other to some extent, um, you know, this this is really one big, one big player in the yard and both of us sort of. Uh, very important, but still, um, do you still get the sense that that's passed? I mean, with what's happened with, you know, with the, with this, with the House of Representatives now, Kevin mm-hmm, McCarthy mm-hmm. and so forth. I mean, we're all looking over our shoulder a little bit. Well, let me say two things about that. First of all, we put a lot of emphasis on populism and we immediately think, right. Truth is populism exists at both ends of the spectrum. And we've mm-hmm. got to be very careful because that illogic that I spoke about exists on both sides. Right. Uh, It is illogical to be talking about no trade agreements and protectionism and, you know, tariffs and all of those things that the right has done at times. It's equally illogical to believe that government can do everything for society and the deficits and debt don't matter. And, you know, just uh, everybody, you know, we're going to take care of you. The truth of the matter is, and I think most people in all of North America, certainly in North America, I would say, and for sure in Canada, or what my father likes to say, are people of the radical middle. We're not that hard left, and we're not that hard right. We're centrist, we're moderate, we believe in social policy, but we also believe in good fiscal policy, right? We kind of want the country to be run yeah. in a way in which we run our lives, right? The, That's Goldilocks, the, first point. the Goldilocks theory, yeah, the Goldilocks yeah, theory, right? It's the, just right. The second yeah. point, which is really goes to the core of your question, is the fact that trade has become a dirty word. And there's a history we can go over as to how that's happened. But the bottom line is it doesn't make it so just because somebody is trying to demonize trade. The reality is trade is what helps create the jobs. Trade is what helps, you know, when your customer goes and buys something and says, man, I like buying my phone at, you know, $100 and not $500. That's trade making that possible. So we've got to figure out where do we add value in the supply chain around the world? And the answer, let me start with where I'm sitting right now in Alberta, is energy. A huge part of our GDP is energy. But you know what? Uh, we've got to build the trade-enabling infrastructure to get that product to market. Wherever I've traveled, they've said, it's a shame you can't get us more. It's a shame yep. you can't get us LNG. You saw what we did to the Germans. You and I have spoken about that before. This is, mm-hmm. this is an area where our government and, and has to do better. And we've got to do better working with them to say, let's figure out how to leverage the fact that our energy industry has growth for the next 20 to 30 years. That will subsidize the innovation necessary to address the emissions reductions and the climate change, right? We can get countries off coal, not, not just other coal. And yet we're not able to get the product to market. So we've got to address that issue here. But we've also got the critical minerals. But you know where they are, Ben? They're in the ground. We've got to have an infrastructure, sorry, a regulatory process that encourages capital to form and and has confidence that whether governments come and whether governments change, that the project stays, the project can go ahead. The jobs that are available to be created in northern, in remote communities in northern Ontario and other places is phenomenal growth to be had but not if we don't have the policy framework that attracts the capital. And right now we don't, there's too much uncertainty. And that's why you're not seeing any of these projects. Some of the companies that were in our delegation are investing in Mexico. The same yeah, companies no, that could be investing in Canada yeah. are investing in Mexico. The nexus, I know, I know this isn't really uh, your lane, but the nexus agreement <laughs> seemed to be something that was important to people who travel a lot, specifically business people. Uh, it looks like they finally came up with a workaround. That seems to be good news. It was strange how long uh, this took them to figure out. 
Yeah, it's an example of what, what I was trying to stress at the meeting, that we have too many irritants that keep us distracted and you know, on the ground floor, and we've got much bigger issues here. Great news that they got it resolved. It is in our lane because, as you said, businesses are very affected by this. Uh, we had written to the U.S. ambassador. I'd worked very closely with the Canadian ambassador and saw her just yesterday and uh, was delighted that we were able to get this. Uh, they were able to get this across the uh, the finish line. And you'd be surprised, by the way, there are a lot of Canadians who get their Nexus Pass just to be able to use it. Uh, including many families. So I think they'll be relieved. And I I can tell you personally, um, my renewal already showed up without an interview or anything. So it's clearly working. Good. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed the head, the, head of, the head of, I mean, the irritants remain, right? I mean, there are yes, always yes. things that will make sense politically. I noticed the head of TC Energy was down there with you. I was thinking back yes. to Keystone XL. Um, mm-hmm. where, do, where do you see both, where do, coming up this year, we're, and with President Biden coming to Canada for the first time as president, which is always yeah. good. Um, where do you see the challenges? Where do you see the irritants this year? And also, what are the things that, that you think will pleasantly surprise us this year in this relationship, given what you've just seen? Yeah. So we look, we stress the, the importance of just recognizing that trade agreements and relationships between countries are really like a marriage. There are going to be things you're going to argue about that you're going to disagree over, but you don't get a divorce every time you have an argument and you disagree about something. You acknowledge it. You hear the other person out. You, you know, in this case, we have a me- we have a dispute mechanism, a resolution mechanism, which we should honor. Uh, you can you can go to a, a body. You can have a, you can have an, you know, make your case. And somebody says this is what the outcome is. What we said to them is. Honor the, the, rule, the rules that are in place. If you lose, you lose. You honor the agreement and we keep going forward. Otherwise, while the rest of the world's moving on and thinking big and acting with ambition and, and urgency, we're going to be here playing small ball, running around talking about issues that, as you rightly note, Ben, are largely political, so they may or may not get resolved because of the politics. We need to think big picture. And that's the main push that we were able to, to, to drive home there. And when you mentioned challenges, the big challenge actually um, is what's called the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. I'm sure listeners are, are not thinking, what's that? Um, at the end of the day, what it really is, is America has decided to go big. And I mean big on in what, what's called industrial policy, on how they're going to really uh, you know, become a place, a magnet for capital, a magnet for talent, where they're going to go after the critical minerals infrastructure. They're going to go after the semiconductor market and the chips, and they're going to become less reliant on, on, on unreliable uh, you know, uh, countries in their mind. And what they've done is effectively made everybody else, France, Japan, Korea, Canada, and others are saying, hang on a minute here. I thought we were going to like French shore and near shore. Where's that? Yeah. Where's that? And so we've got to go the- to them and yeah. say, we realize you're the G1 and we realize that you can print money because you're the global currency. But my, our message, and I said this to many of the American administration people that I met with, is a strong America comes from a strong North America. You benefiting at the expense of Canada and Mexico is not good for you. Never mind not good for North America. If you have problems in Mexico, you have issues in Canada, you're in the neighborhood. It's going to spill over. So let's work together. Let's figure out how we can build those supply chains and and the integrity of those supply chains. Let's not be protectionist. Let's not be territorial. Let's not think small. Let's think big about how North America can compete. And as I said, at least expressions and the follow-up, there was a sense of optimism. And the Prime Minister, I thought, did a superb job in really making the case for trade. Because as you know, in the United States, it's a dirty word. No one talks about trade. And they have a new a new word called frameworks, whatever that is. Right? It's remarkable. You know, I mean, the ultimate trading nation has stopped talking yes. about trade. It is so yes. bizarre. Exactly. And so I, I think it's really important that in, in this case, obviously, you have a very different government in, in Mexico. It was good to see the prime minister make the case 
uh, for the importance of that. But at the same time, what we're also saying is it, 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 it is important that we are a magnet for capital, that we do build the infrastructure, right, that we are going to be working with leveraging our growth in our, in our sectors, which does include the oil and gas sector. It's, it's, it's just happening. If you don't want it to happen here, somebody else somewhere in the world is doing it. I mean, where did the United States go for their oil when they were having their crisis? They went to Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Iran. The same country that shut down Keystone Pipeline went to those countries. And we've got to call them out on it. We've got to say to yeah. them, we've got it. And we can get it to you responsibly, lower emissions. I mean, our business community here, I'm proud to say, is making significant. I'm talking hundreds of billions of dollars of plans of investment in things like carbon capture, utilization, and storage to get emissions right out of the sky. And remember one thing about carbon. There's no market for it. You're not going to go out and put it in a gas station and sell it to somebody or a carbon station. It's just cost. Goldie, we're, we're getting played out. Thank you so much for your time today. Welcome back. Good to be with you. We'll talk again, I'm sure, Ben. All the best. Well, every once in a while, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. It really is. So you've heard of a jailbird, right? Common, common phrase. This story puts an entirely different set of wings on that term. When I saw it for the first time last week, you know, we knew we had to find out more about it because we kept talking about it. Right before the new year, prison guards at the Pacific Institution in Abbotsford, BC, spotted a pigeon inside the maximum, medium, and minimum security potential penitentiary's walls. Um, so what, you say, right? A pigeon. You see them everywhere. Well, this pigeon happened to have a little backpack strapped to it. And you could say this was not a social call. John Randall, Pacific Regional President of the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, says the bird was apprehended at Pacific Institution in Abbotsford, 80 kilometres east of Vancouver. He says the backpack contained crystal methamphetamine. Randall says he was told by officers that the bird was spotted with its unusual cargo on December 29th in a yard at the facility, and they set up a trap to catch it. Randall says in recent years, prison officers have been on the lookout for drones carrying drugs and other contraband, but it's the first time in his 13 years as a corrections officer he's heard of a live bird being used. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Yeah, I mean, this isn't unheard of. It's It's been done. It's happened. I mean, there are headlines. If you Google it, you'll see it's happened before. But wow, you know, yeah, they're on the lookouts for drones and other things. But yeah, this pigeon just happened to fly right in there with its little backpack on with this uh, little supply of methamphetamine. What a strange story. I mean, it's, you know, when it comes to smuggling contraband into prison, I suppose uh, everything goes. But still, so how would one go about training a pigeon to act as a mule, so to speak? We thought we'd find out. We thought we'd find out what the possibilities were here from someone who knows the birds. And uh, Jivo Hasco is that person. He's director of the Vancouver Poultry and Fancy Pigeon Association and joins us now um, from Maple Ridge. Thank you so much for your time tonight. This is this is quite the story. You must have, I know you've been asked about it already, but what did you think when you first saw it? Uh, I, I, I found it uh, astonishing that it happened in our uh, in British Columbia in Canada. I have heard of it before, but it was, uh, it's an amusing story, I guess we should say. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, you know, there's been some stories about this already, including, you know, one from back in the 30s when this was done. I was reading another one uh, from Iran where they were, they were using pigeons and like a whole flock of them to, to bring drugs in from Afghanistan. Um, but in this case, how would you go about doing this? So, so I have to tell you that it, it does happen, like you just said, and um, more so over borders. Less likely in a prison, but um, we could play that advocate game and say, um, 
if 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 one wanted to train birds inside the prison, get the bird out. The bird only knows that this our beautiful pigeons have a homing instinct, and they know to come home. And so, if the pigeon yard was its home, and it was um, taken outside and put a backpack on, released, it would come back to its uh, its rightful home, which would be the prison. Right. Could so so. So in that case, you're right. As homing pigeons, they, the, the home would have to be where it wound up, right? You couldn't train it to fly into the prison and come back, in other words. Or it would be more difficult. No, like, so the, um, all pigeons uh, have a homing instinct, and uh, it's been, uh, you know, televised and, and studied over the years. Um, but it has to be uh, coming back to its home. It can't go somewhere else, <laughs> put a backpack on and, and uh, come back. Right. So in this case, I mean, what are your, what are your, knowing the birds the way you do, what would you be your best guess as to how this, this particular pigeon ended up with this particular backpack in, in the prison yard? I mean, it made it inside the prison walls. Yeah. So my best guess is, you know, as, as sad as um, beautiful, our beautiful birds have like gone into this kind of realm, but the, the saddest part about the story is, is most likely the uh, the pigeon was um, a carrier mule, and um, they 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 just grabbed probably an ordinary pigeon rather than than finding a um, a pigeon from a location where it was bred. Um, it probably was put a backpack on or a little little uh, pack on and thrown over the fence, you know, overnight or whenever it was, and uh, maybe hoping that the guards didn't notice that there was a pigeon walking around. Um, most likely the the wings were the the fit the feathers for flights were were tied up so that the bird cannot fly as as high and um, and that's how the guards caught it because otherwise the guards wouldn't have caught that bird if uh, all the flight feathers were ready to go it's very difficult to catch a pigeon let alone just one pigeon in a single area. Yeah, they move pretty fast. I mean, I mean, that's. I guess I was just curious because we know they can be trained, right? I mean, clearly they've been trained over centuries. People have used homing pigeons for different, uh, for different things. Um, and in this case, it just struck me as being, well, how did, how would you, how would you, why would you, and how would you put a backpack on a pigeon and then have it end up in a prison yard? And I guess you're right. The probably the most logical explanation is they didn't train it at all. They just picked a pigeon, put a backpack on, it, and threw it over the threw it over the prison walls and hope for the best. That that's right. Like I, you can't, you could do that with a pigeon more so than uh, than any other one. Pigeons, everyone has pigeons. Uh, you could, it's easy to get pigeons uh, locally or anywhere else, and and uh, more likely thinking that the guards wouldn't notice. But um, that's most likely. You know, the 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 long story would be, of course, training it and releasing it. And but when the even you know, I've heard stories where. Uh, it's over the border where they've attached a GPS to it and it has gone back and that's how they've tracked who was um, who the shipment was meant for. But uh, in this case, yeah, I guarantee even if the uh, the guards released it with a tracker on it, most likely that pigeon wouldn't uh, wouldn't go back to wherever it's from. Right. I mean, the, the um, a news outlet here in telling this story brought back up this story from the 1930s when this gentleman had sold um, had sold some homing pigeons to a buyer in Mexico, and then they flew back to his home in Texas with two capsules of cocaine in them, right? This is 1930. Like, this goes back a long way. Um, 
but they are remarkable creatures. I mean, aside from this whole incident in Abbotsford, they are homing pigeons are remarkable creatures. You know all about them, of course. You have lots of pigeons on or on your property in Maple Ridge, do you not? Yeah, so I I have fancy pigeons. Um, there are over three hundred pigeon breeds, and the one that they caught was uh, a, most likely a regular homing pigeon or a racing pigeon. But um, we're talking about pigeons that could fly or faster or quicker than than a Tesla or Formula One, and and that could fly like um, more than a thousand kilometers at a speeds of 150 kilometers an hour. Like like wow. um, birds like. Our pigeons have saved lives in, in, in World War. Like, like we're talking about this beautiful bird that is now being used for, for smuggling, you know, drugs into a, a prison. That's the sad part of the story. And yeah. um, that what's, what's, I think what we're missing a little bit here, and, and uh, you know, I have kids, but um, what we're missing part as well is if that pigeon ended up somewhere else um, with, you know, a pigeon walking around and, some kids grabbed it or something like that, that, that no one has talked about. Maybe this pigeon was thrown quickly, hastily, as, as they're going by, throw the pigeon over the fence. But what if that pigeon didn't go over the fence and just stayed on the other side and some kid grabbed that? Like, it's a, it's a sad story when you start thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's highly, I mean, clearly, the novelty of it aside, it's, you know, it's highly irresponsible. There's no two ways about it. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm glad they caught it. Obviously, you wonder how many other times they've done this. Um, how would you put a backpack on a pigeon? I mean, you 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 deal with them. I know that the stories that I was reading, um, the one out of Iran, they actually had little boxes on their, on their, on their, you know, on their feet, essentially, which would make sense. But I can't. I can't picture a, a backpack at all. Yeah. So they put. I've seen many. Most. Most. Um, the ones that have small, um, like Jeremy, the one that saved lives in in the wars, and um, they they used to have little letters written in like like a ten font or whatever, like ten sentences or something like that, in a little mm-hmm. on their legs. Uh, most of them were on their legs uh, because they tuck their legs in when they fly. They fly faster that way. And uh, but I've seen backpacks over the back, and um, yeah, it's when you start getting into that that they, smugglers are trying all this stuff just to smuggle drugs in, and because the, this beautiful creature is fast and and uh, smart and knows how to get home, all they have to do is take this bird from wherever their home is, take it a thousand kilometers away, and let it go with whatever they want and. Um, and it gets it gets to where they, they its home is. Yeah. Well, this certainly wasn't be, wasn't meant to be a lesson on how to do it properly. But I'm glad you've cleared up how it could have been done. Uh, Jivo Hasko, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. I hope next time we talk, uh, we'll just talk about the birds. We won't talk about anything anything smuggling related. Thank you so much for having me. Criminal crime historian Eve Lazarus's new book, Cold Case BC. It has tons of cases and it is a it is a fascinating read i highly recommend it um but just to provide some context you know they are often the forgotten victims of forgotten crimes remembered only through the years and decades by those closest to them perhaps the odd reporter who covered the story at the time and often the officers that investigated them although not always and sometimes the communities they left behind. In BC alone, as Eve points out, there are hundreds of unsolved murders dating back decades and many more disappearances and other unexplained events where people have seemingly vanished. 
Justice delayed, of course, is justice denied. Justice never delivered is no justice at all. And so Eve has made it her mission to document some of those cases, digging up old details, speaking to family members, investigators, others who knew them, friends, and so forth, about crimes that long ago went cold. Uh, She is a crime historian, uh, again, author of several books, including Cold Case Vancouver and now Cold Case, Case BC. As far as I can tell, it's 16 cases, but she can correct me, dating back as far as the 1940s and communities as far apart as Victoria in the south here on Vancouver Island to as far north as the so-called Highway of Tears. All of it in an effort to call attention to the cases and to the victims with the hope, the faint hope sometimes, of finding some answers. And in some cases, to document how very cold cases were in fact finally solved. Let's begin on that highway of tears. It's an expression I'm sure you've probably heard. A stretch of highways, uh, 1697 and 5 in the northern part of BC, where at least 18 Indigenous women have been murdered or disappeared over the past half century. And Eve Lazarus, a crime historian, author of several books, including Cold Case Vancouver and the latest Cold Case BC, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you. Thank you for having me. It is quite the, um, it's a remarkable collection of, of, of stories simply because of the amount of research you must have had to put into it. Um, tell me a bit about, you know, I found there was a common theme with many of the cases, and a lot of them were sort of focused on those who were left behind looking for answers with very little help, it turned out. Right. Uh, it was really important for me to tell the story of the victim and, and in a sense, to try to give them back their voice. And and to do that, you know, I really needed to, to talk to the families and particularly with the unsolved murders, as I'm sure you know, that police won't talk about them at all. So you can't get any information from RCMP or or police on any of these. It doesn't matter how old. And, you know, I've tried in the past filing FOIs and all sorts of things and um, been shut down that way. So it's really frustrating, particularly for families that, have got decades-old cases that just aren't being worked on. And every case in Cold Case, uh, the most recent was 1993. So they're all quite a few years before DNA came out and sort of became part of the the forensic toolkit. And without, you know, in, in those days before DNA, evidence wasn't treated very kindly. A lot of it was lost, it was contaminated, it was thrown out. So... These cases, and you know, we keep hearing about so many cases being solved south of the border through genetic genealogy and and other things, um, aren't going to happen to these cases because there just isn't any DNA there. So the only way they're really going to get solved, in my opinion, is to keep talking about them, to keep them alive in the media, on social media, and um, and just hope that more information could come forward and, and help to solve them. One of the um, things that really stands out, you did devote three chapters of this book to cases that um, involve the so-called Highway of Tears, as we called, including the very first victim, Gloria Moody. This is a case I didn't know much about other than the name, because obviously when they released those 18 names, uh, you looked at all of them, and that was the first one back in 1969. Tell me a bit about her case and why you chose to include her in the book. Well, Cold Case um, BC is really divided up into three areas. It's unsolved murders, it's um, murders that were solved after a really long time, and it's missing people. And when I looked at the Highway of Tears, um, 
I really didn't know much about it. And I was kind of, the more I kind of looked into it, the more shocked I was. You know, this is just such an incredible national tragedy that we're starting to hear a bit more about. But, you know, when I started looking into the cases, um, I'd never heard of the, the Gloria Moody. I'd, you know, seen her face, as we all have in those long lists and stuff like that. But I didn't know anything about her as a person. And I thought because she was the oldest case that was unsolved as those 18 Aparna cases, that I'd really take a, a look at her. And I'd connected with her daughter, Vanessa, on social media. So I was able to sort of talk to her. And now she was only four years old when her mother was killed, so she had no memory of her. But I was able to talk to her about, you know, the, the police investigation or lack of it over the decades and um, until it actually became part of Aparna. And I was able to find um, the inquest of her mother and, and, and just sort of work there and sort of build a story around who she was and, and what had happened to her and uh, what had happened over the years. Yeah, she was, I gather, 24, and this was a weekend away. <laughs> this was meant to be a weekend of celebration, right, that ended um, with sort of indescribable yeah. brutality. Yeah, yeah. 26-year-old mother of two from Bella Cooler, and um, her parents, had um, said, hey, we're going to take you away, you and your younger brother, for a weekend, you know, to unwind and have some fun in, in Williams Lake. And, and back then it was like a 12-hour drive, apparently, and they did it. They stopped on the way and visited relatives. And um, Gloria and her brother let loose and sort of did a bar hop and stuff like that. And at some point during the night, uh, they were at the ranch hotel and her brother lost sight of her and she wasn't seen again that night and they found a body the next day So, and horrifically murdered. Um, it's just horrible and it's one of these worst kept secrets apparently in William Slake who did it, uh, these three men and gradually they died. Two died in the 70s and, and one in the 80s and um, police in the 90s went to Vanessa and her family and said, well, you know, we know who did it, the case is resolved, they're dead now, we can't do anything about it, um, thanks very much. And that was the first time she'd ever really been contacted by them, which I just find astounding, decades later. And then when Aparna came on the scene and, and formed in 2005, um, they had a certain amount of criteria they were looking at. The, the victims had to be female, the crime must have occurred near one of the, the three highways, um, the victims were, were typically engaged in, although not always, but in a high-risk activity like hitchhiking or sex work. And the killer had to be a stranger. And um, in Gloria's case, of course, she was near the highway, she was female, um, and the killer was definitely a stranger. So she was part of that criteria that they looked at. And they still hadn't solved the case, but uh, they did take a a long, long look back at it, and it, it still it remains resolved but unsolved. It was interesting that um, Ipana, by the way, was the uh, was the inquiry or the investigations launched into these uh, eighteen uh, women who were associated or were murdered or disappeared around the Highway of Tears and Gloria Moody's name, despite the fact that the circumstances were it seemed a terribly kept secret in the town. Uh, she still wound up on that list, giving the family, as you mentioned, the family some hope that they might get an answer one day. But it feels like they had, they have all the answers they're going to get. It seems like um, one of the things that struck me reading that story, and this is true of many stories and 
when it comes to the Highway of Tears, is how sort of, and I don't want to cast too many aspersions, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the police didn't seem too fussed. No, no, and I, I think that's happened a lot. Um, and most people will tell you it wasn't in, until Nicole Hoare, a white girl, uh, went, miss, went missing from Prince George in the early uh, 2000s that they really kicked this into gear. Um, you know, when you look at some of these cases, you know, you've got the, the Jack family, which is not part of these 18. And I, I'm always a bit confused about um, why they, you know, some cases mm-hmm. were included and some weren't. Um, in the 18 cases, for example, 13 were teenagers and um, uh, age, and the ages range from 12 to, to 33. But for example, with the Jack family, which is just, I, I'd never heard of it. And it, it just shocked me that I hadn't heard of this case. And in 1989, an entire family of four went missing. And I think it's the first time in Canadian history that a whole family went missing and it's still missing. And yet there was virtually nothing about it. Um, there wasn't much. When they first went missing, nothing was really done. And, and one problem was that um, they thought they were going to get some work at a logging camp. And we're talking to the, the, Doreen and um, her husband, Ronnie, had two kids. They were both 26 years old only, and they had two kids aged um, four and nine, I think, Russell and Ryan. And they were fairly impoverished living in Prince George. And Ronnie was offered some work in a logging camp. And this man who approached him at the pub also said, look, you know, and we can give your wife a job as a cook. And uh, when they weren't able to get daycare for the children, the, the guy said, oh, you know, it's okay, we can look after them at the logging camp at the daycare, which, you know, just didn't make any sense at all. But I, I think no. they were quite desperate. And um, part of the thing was they had to leave with him immediately. And they did, but Ronnie fortunately called his mother and um, just told her what was going on and said, you know, we've got jobs, you know, this is great, we'll be away for about 10 days. But then he said something really strange. He said, if we don't come back, come look for us. So he must have had some kind of indication that it might not all have been on the up and up. My sister Monica was beautiful, sweet, kind and good at everything I ever saw her do. Today is a fine day to celebrate her final victory. I'm happy to say that we have finally been given justice. The sister of Monica Jack, who vanished at the age of 12 while riding her bike in Merritt, BC in May of 1978. Uh, another of the cases featured in the Highway of Tears section of Eve Lazarus's new book, Cold Case BC. Eve, this was quite the case as well. I'll let you finish talking about the Jack family. We have lots of time over the next uh, 40 minutes or so to talk about this. The Jack family, no relation, um, went missing. The whole family, as you mentioned, the 26-year-old couple and their two kids, uh, never heard from again, right, that family? No, nothing. Not a trace of them was found. And, and one of the problems was because, you know, they'd told everyone they were going away for 10 days, no one looked for them for that 10 days. And um, when they didn't come back, it, um, the, the Ronnie's mother filed a, a report with the police. Now, I don't know how much work they actually did at that stage with them, but, you know, they're already behind. Uh, they couldn't have got a good description. They did get a description of the man that Ronnie talked to it was supposedly, you know, offering them job, but it was a couple of weeks had gone by. 
they had a description of the car, but again, you know, couldn't really be sure if it was the same night. And, you know, so there were a lot of problems there just getting the investigation underway. Um, but, yeah, but nothing, nothing was nothing. ever found. And and really, uh, I heard about this through uh, Doreen's younger sister, Marlene, who's just been relentless um, keeping attention going for for this family and and getting the RCMP to you know keep looking at it and she's done age progression photos of the boys and you know she's really admire what she's been doing to to keep this in the public light it's um it's interesting you mentioned that because i think that's another vein that exists through many of these stories is the sort of is the is the families left behind? And we just heard from Monica Jack's younger sister at the time. Uh, Monica was just 12 when she disappeared in Merritt in 1978. Um, her body wasn't found for many years. A suspect wasn't arrested for many years after that. But mm-hmm. um, the families really have always, have never forgotten, right? And they just keep keep pushing, trying to figure out if there isn't an answer out there for them. Yeah, and I found it's not just the families. I mean, it's obviously tragic for them, and it goes on for decades and decades. But it's also whole communities, you know, particularly missing people cases that have searched for these people, knew these people, wanted some kind of answer. And, you know, decades go past and there's no closure. And with this case, it was particularly heart-wrenching with Monica Jack. I mean, she was... She's just 12 years old. She'd been given an early birthday present, a 10-speed bike, and she'd been given permission to ride, meet her cousin on the way and ride to Merritt and do some shopping and actually buy a birthday present for Liz, um, whose birthday was the next day. And she was coming back and just on her way home, not far from her home. Her, her mother and sisters had actually passed her in the car. And she'd been abducted she was just abducted and her body wasn't found for 17 years so the family had to you know go through all that with no closure at all and and then when her body was found you know it took 40 years after she was murdered to convict her um, murderer yeah i i wanted to get into how they found her murderer because because there there are some mysteries in your book of course cases that remain cold cases that may never be solved but you've also included some examples uh where by different techniques um the killer was in fact identified and caught and convicted and this is one of those cases it is a particularly odd way that they did it but they did manage uh to find their their suspect and their their guilty party at the end of it all um but i you know again it we just looking at that picture of Monica Jack, it always strikes me that they don't age, right? So they're mm. so that same face always looks back at you, saying, "You know, you know, you move on," but they never do, and it, they mm. always seem to sit there saying, "You know, someone's out there who knows what happened to me." Yeah, yeah, and um, that was it's so interesting in the sense that they had Gary Handlin, who was convicted of a murder in the end, but they had him in their sights from. Really, day one. Eve Lazarus is our guest for the segment this month. She's talking to us about her book called Cold Case BC, which examines several uh, murders, unsolved and solved, as well as missing people, uh, cold cases across the province of BC, dating from 1993 all the way back to uh, 
to the warriors, really back to the Second World War, uh, a couple of unsolved murders here in the Victoria area, actually. The case we've been talking about now, though, it was a high-profile one. It was the disappearance of 12-year-old Monica Jack in Merrick, B.C., back in 1978, and the eventual uh, conviction of her killer, uh, who uh, was was in it, it, was in at least in sight of police, quite early in the, in, the, in the investigation. They had a description of the vehicle. He happened to own a similar vehicle. Um, he had a record. He would have been convicted of sex offenses, I believe. Uh, all of it, though, uh, Gary Taylor, Taylor Hanlon wouldn't be arrested for decades, uh, Eve. What happened? He simply got away with it. Yeah, and it was the second one. He was also uh, originally indicted for uh, Catherine Mary Herbert's murder in Abbotsford. Uh, she was an 11-year-old girl in 1975, and he had a connection to the family. So that but they couldn't get him on that either. And, um, yeah, decades went past, and they decided uh, in 2014 to take another look at it. And by that time, he was living in um, Minden in Ontario, and I think he was running a, a small... Uh, renovation business. He was married or had a partner, and uh, they decided to launch a Mr. Big Sting. And this is pretty fascinating. It's an, an RCMP sort of thing that came up in the 90s. It's um, gone through quite a few changes and things, but it, it's been quite successful. I'm always surprised why. You think, you know, do criminals not listen to shows like yours and read books? Yeah. And, and things or but shows apparently like they yours, don't. yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was watching his con- his confession as part of the public record, and yeah, yeah you'd be hard pressed to to buy what uh, what the undercover officer is selling. But in fact, they essentially convince him that if he gives up the details, they can get someone else to take the fall for it, right? But they put in months and months of work as well, you know, grooming True, them. I guess you know they sort of um, hire him to, to work in what he thinks is a criminal organisation and, you know, they make up all these um, scenarios that he thinks are illegal, like carjacking or drugs or, you know, beating up someone or, you know, all sorts of sort of weird things and they get progressively more and more and they spend a, a ton of money on this, you know, they fly them all around the country and, and uh, you know, take them out for fancy dinners and things like that and all the while, you know, that they're, they're grooming the, this guy to, to become part of a, a larger criminal organisation, or at least he thinks he is. He's obviously not doing anything really illegal. Uh, but by the time, you know, it gets to a certain point, uh, they say, look, you know, we've got um, contacts in the police force. We know you're going to be charged with this murder. They've got DNA, but we can help you. We can get you out of this. We've got someone who's dying and um, he will do this as a deathbed confession if you give his family a bunch of money and we'll do that for you. But first of all, you have to tell us everything. You have to tell us everything about the murder and how it was done. And they even took him back to Merritt and had him show them where he abducted her and and then later where he buried the bones or buried the body where they'd found the bones. And he made a really detailed confession. It was quite chilling, wasn't it, when you sort of listen to it and, and see him? Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, I gather that after that, at least he appears to have 
sort of flown under the radar after that. I mean, despite his his very violent past uh, up until this point, and again, uh, convicted of one murder, they dropped the other murder charge that you referred to once mm. he'd been convicted of this one. Um, but yeah, again, though, you know, it, it does strike you as, as you look back, and it's so easy with hindsight. You look back at that case and think, well, how could they not have, you know, he was already a suspect in another disappearance and murder of a young girl. How could they not have pushed a little harder on this one? And it gets back to wondering whether the victims were taken seriously. Yeah, uh, well, again, they didn't have a body. So huge problem there, right? So no evidence, no body. Um, And Catherine Herbert, I can't remember offhand, I didn't write about her in detail, um, how long her body was found, but I think there was quite a gap of time as well. So they're already really behind in the investigation. And a lot of these, not particularly, you know, it's 12-year-olds, they obviously took that seriously as a missing person. But a lot of the cases, you know, when they're a bit older, like Lindsay Nichols, 14-year-old, they just weren't taken seriously. They were just told, oh, no, you know, they've got a history. They're obviously a runaway, you know, sort of go away. Weeks and weeks and months go by. Uh, especially when, you know, a body isn't found and nothing's been done and then it's really, you know, too late to gather that crucial evidence that would help find yeah. what happened. Um, from one case that was really about um, police techniques to another that was really about science, uh, and this is one that I knew because I was here by the time the arrests were made, but uh, Tanya Van Kylenberg was 18, mm. Jay Cook 20. They were a young couple who lived in Saanich, which is a suburb of Victoria. They had gone off to Seattle for the night in a van to do an errand uh, to pick up something for one of their parents. They had sort of driven over and uh, they vanished. They were, you know, they turned up both, they both turned up dead a while later, but this all happened in Washington State in 1987. What about this case? Um, piqued your curiosity in terms of just, I guess you would have known about it uh, beforehand because it had resurfaced several times over the years. Yeah, uh, just a a really fascinating case. Of course, I got really interested when they um, got into genetic genealogy a couple of years ago uh, because it was the first case that's actually gone to trial in the world uh, based on genetic genealogy. That's right. So that was fascinating. And, And of course, you know, they were local kids and um, just, you know, really nice decent kids that were just going to Seattle overnight and camping out in the van and picking up some parts for, for Jay's father and, and supposedly driving back the next day and, and just, you know, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but Tanya was found, her body was found about five or six days after she went missing. She'd been shot in the head execution style. Um, she'd been zip-tied. She'd been sexually assaulted. And... Uh, Jay's van was found very soon afterwards, uh, about 20 kilometres away in Bellingham. And then the, another day went by and they found his body in you know, a completely different area of Washington State. And they ended up having sort of four crime scenes over you know, four counties over, over this thing. And it was just a huge, huge investigation and, and nothing turned up. And in this case, you know, they never found the um, 38 automatic that killed her, but they did have, they had DNA from the semen that was left on her body. And um, when DNA did come on the scene in, in 96, uh, they thought, you know, great, now we'll be able to catch it. You know, there's such a violent crime. It must be, you know, an offender. We'll probably be able to find his um, DNA in CODIS or, or our DNA 
data bank up in Canada. And nothing, no hits, and decades nothing, went no. on, and, and nothing was found. And um, it, it was just such a, you know, a mystery uh, of how this guy, you know, could have done something so violent and, and not done anything before or afterwards. And they ended up um, doing uh, phenotyping, and phenotyping is a really interesting sort of thing that they do from the DNA, these labs in the States, and they'll use the DNA from the crime scene to build almost a computer image of the suspect, or of the murderer in this case, because they have got his DNA, and it'll tell them all sorts of things like eye colour and skin colour and facial structure and, and things like that, and apparently the, the images aren't that you know, terrifically accurate. But things like having the skin colour and the ancestry really helps to eliminate a lot of um, suspects, which is what they were hoping to do. I think they had a couple of hundred at, at that point. And, you know, the, show, the um, case had been on shows like um, Unsolved Mysteries and stuff like that. So they had hundreds of tips to, to go through. And um, so anyway, and then a short time afterwards, um, Dr. Barbara Venter was working with the FBI on the Golden right. State Killer, and she was a genetic genealogist in the States. And they found his identity, that he was a former cop. Yeah. And after decades, and again, he had never come up on the radar anywhere as a former yeah. cop, and, and they got his DNA. And... Um, so, the Golden State Killer, yeah. Yeah, yeah which is just yeah. amazing. And so Parabon Labs had the phenotyping, so they had everything sequenced, ready to go. And um, Cece Moore, who has become quite famous now as a genetic genealogist, uh, was given the job of um, putting that through the, the DNA databanks and trying to find a match. And, and you know, when you, you spit in a tube and you send it off to Ancestry.com or Twitter right, yeah. me and ends up in a database, well, if you opt in uh, and say, yeah, I'd like to, you know, upload it to um, GEDmatch, then law enforcement can also search it. And that's what happened. Um, one of this, the killer of Jay and Tanya's relatives, two of them actually, had um, put in their DNA and, and opted in. And um, Susie Moore was able to get hits pretty you know, quickly on that. But it can just be an incredibly long process. For the Golden State Killer, they had a, a thousand potential suspects from um, this familiar DNA. And they had to, you know, build family trees and then use, you know, death yeah, certificates, marriage certificates and newspapers and Facebook and, you know, everything else to, to try to, you know, get, eliminate, you know, as many as they can and, and to try to narrow it down. So it's quite fascinating. It's very, very time-consuming. And uh, uh, in the end, you know, they looked at things like age and, you know, was it, how old would it have to be a male, obviously, and how old would they have had to be to commit these crimes decades ago and where were they living at the time with a close proximity and they ended up narrowing the Golden State Killer case. They narrowed it down to, to two people and they were able to follow these suspects around, get cast off DNA from, you know, a tissue or a coffee cup or a cigarette or something like that and they were able to, to you know, identify this guy. And a similar thing happened with um, the killer of Jay and Tanya's. But yeah. she was able to identify William Talbot really quickly and then it was yeah, a matter was just of... Yeah, the, the two relatives, right? So yeah. it was pretty quick, yeah. Me have been justice delayed, but not justice denied for Tanya and Jay. The genetic genealogy community deserves a uh, recognition. Their advancements and analytics are what helped get us to this stage. 
That is John Van Kylenborg, uh, brother of Tanya Von Kylenborg, one of two victims of William Talbot. Uh, they were killed in Washington State in 1987. It wasn't until very recently, though, that that case went to trial, thanks to genetic genealogy, and not until just a few weeks ago that, in fact, uh, he was uh, the conviction was upheld in Supreme Court. Uh, there was an appeal in that case that was that was. Uh, that was uh, interesting, a juror apparently, juror jury bias, and uh, the appeals court um, ruled in favor of the defense in this case, uh, but it was overturned again, or, or at least the conviction was upheld at the Supreme Court in Washington State. You spoke to a lot of people involved in this case, Eve uh, Lazarus, and for your book, Cold Case BC. One of the things that was interesting I found about this one is that uh, Cece, the woman who did the genetic genealogy, had memory of the case. She'd been the same age. She'd lived in BC at mm -hmm. one point. Uh, the detectives, one of the detectives involved had been an investigator on the case and was still involved later. That It, um, it struck me as having a lot of people uh, spent a lot of years looking into this one. Yeah, they really did. And one of the things that really struck me, though, with this one, when I talked to Cece Moore, she said, um, well, you know, this whole thing with genetic genealogy is identified a completely new type of killer. Someone like William Talbot that um, did something, he was only 24 years old when he killed them. But someone like, you know, like that, that does this outrageously violent crime and then never does anything again. It, they're sort of dubbing it one and done. But it goes against everything we think. You know, we think of these killers kind of, you know, build up with little animals or something and, you know, and just get, get you know, do an assault and just get, you know, more violent and violent. But it, not in these cases. They're finding these people that it's just once, one really, really violent crime and, and they're out. And if it wasn't for genetic, genetic genealogy, they'd never find them. No, I, I mean, I can imagine that in this case, William Talbot would never have been found, right? There was no, no he was not on anyone's radar. He, there was no way he was going to be tracked down. No, no, it's just, it's incredible what they're doing and, uh, and finding missing people. It's the same technology that identified the babes in the woods last February. Right. Of course, another case that you worked on, uh, these, uh, these two, it ended up being a boy and a girl. Is that right? Was that two boys, uh, two, two two boys right? It, it, yeah. We thought it was a boy and a girl. It was two boys, uh, right. ultimately. It really has changed so much. I mean, especially for, I mean, oftentimes when you talked about getting the stories out there so people will not forget, it's amazing that science has helped jog memories to some extent. I mean, it's, it's opened up a whole different chapter in some of these cases where there really weren't ever going to be answers like the babes in the woods, like this one. Yeah, no, it's great to see. And, um, you know, I'd love to see more of it happening in Canada. You know, it's kind of frustrating when you're seeing dozens and dozens of cases being solved south of the border and we're just not taking advantage of this technology very much up here. Is that, uh, you mentioned it earlier that there were some issues back, way back when in the day, in the 70s and so on, just with crime scene uh, preservation, the way that crime scenes were handled, there wasn't as much DNA gathered, so we don't have as much to go on. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that, that's, um, you know, obviously an issue if they hadn't, got DNA they can't do this but it's um, also a privacy concern and uh, it just they've really tightened up on, on the databases and what they can search missing people's a bit looser uh, they can they've got more leeway in that but they also don't in in the states everything's you know sort of you can buy everything all sorts of information mm -hmm. addresses and and we're much tighter with our public records private well, private records like vital statistics and stuff like that so um Genealogists would really have to work very closely with police departments and, and get the proper warrants and get all that sort of stuff that they don't need to do in the state. Right. 
Although we've seen it happen, there was the, those uh, unsolved murders from Toronto back in the yep. early 80s. I think that case, I, I interviewed one of the genealogists who worked on that, and they said, of course, they have to work very closely with police. They're not allowed to talk about it at all, no. uh, but they can talk about some of the work they've done. What's the reaction been like to this book, Eve? Because I know it's not the first one you've written, but once you put all these stories out into the public sphere, I know it's been doing very well. A lot of people reading it. You must have gotten some feedback. Yeah, it's really uh, captured people's attention and it really it came out of Cold Case Vancouver. I started a, a Facebook page where people could sort of come and talk and maybe leave tips and, in, you know, in a perfect world sort of leave information that might help to solve it. And But what happened um, was I'd put out posts on the, the day that someone went missing or was murdered and People would uh, connect with me. Families would come to me and, and tell me about their, you know, missing loved one or murdered loved one and, and stuff like that. And it just sort of mushroomed and mushroomed into um, the, the book in a sense. You know, most of the cases seem to have found me and and then the podcast. So I mean, there's a huge swelling out there of people that really want to see these cases solved and and want to do whatever they can to help. Yeah, it's remarkable how many of the cases have people out there who still remember them, even though some of them, as you mentioned, date all the way back to the 40s. Uh, the most recent case in the book is 1993, and yet everywhere you looked, you found people who were either diligently trying to keep these cases uh, alive, uh, not not let them go too cold, uh, and at the same time, or or families that that you know had stories to tell about how much devastation these crimes had had on their families in the short term. Eve Lazarus, it's been, uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. The book is called Cold Case BC. It's available. It's a bestseller here in, here in BC. It's actually hard to find, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> these days. It's been doing really well. Congratulations on that. And as you mentioned, Thanks. it's all about keeping these stories out there. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me on. 